Amen to that. I hope we always remember the theme of that song and the title of it. This morning, I want to take you back to a period of time. I want you to think with me. I want you to think that you're living back in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, in fact, at the time I'm going to talk to you about, uh, the Lord has concluded his life on this earth and he has ascended into heaven leaving a band of people here on this earth that's referred to as his disciples. Now, I want to go to Acts 2.42 at this time where it says, and they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayer. People oftentimes are searching for what can we do to uh, help the church grow? What can we do to make the church more spiritual? What can we do to strengthen our church, et cetera? Well, all those are great questions. But people, by nature, are always looking for easy answers. They're looking for a quick fix. People want to lose weight. They're just hoping somebody will come out with a pill. Where they, well, there's plenty of them out there, but this one here, you just take one a day and you drop five pounds a day. I mean, that's, that's what they want. They, they don't want to do the work. They, they don't want to be disciplined. They don't want to do what's necessary to accomplish a goal. Well, that's true in the church, too, the Lord's church. Prosperity in the Lord's church and growth in the Lord's church is measured totally different than in the denominational world. I can assure you that. But here we find the formula for it. Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in four things. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. That's the formula. That's the recipe. If our church would do this, the Primitive Baptist churches throughout the country would do this, there would be prosperity. But that requires effort. It requires diligence. It requires focus to continue steadfastly in these things. Now, who were the they here? It says, and they continued steadfastly. Let's think about the they this morning. Well, if you go back up, well, let's go to the beginning of this chapter. You'll find it was the day of Pentecost. And Jews had come from various parts of the, of the known world in that day to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Pentecost. That was, uh, Pentecost means 50, and a very important feast to the Jews. And you find a miraculous thing has taken place. These Jews have come to this place. These were devout Jews, and they came here, and they were speaking different languages and different dialects, but every person heard everybody else speak in their own language. In their own language. They got different language, different dialects. When people spoke, each person heard them speak in their own language. That was a miracle. In fact, it was such a miraculous thing, there were some who began to mock and said, well, these, these people just drunk on new wine. But the apostle Peter spoke up and said, not so, it's only the third hour of the day. He said, but this is what was written in the prophet, by the prophet Joel. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy found in the book of Joel. And then Peter began to preach. Now, Peter was a Jewish apostle. He's preaching to a Jewish congregation of a, several thousands. We'll see in just a few minutes. And he's preaching about a Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to this world, he was born among the Jewish people. When Peter got through preaching, and it's an interesting sermon. You go back and read it for yourself. When he got through preaching, he ended like this. He says, God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. God hath made this same Jesus. You crucified him. Peter is charging the nation of Israel with the national sin of the crucifixion of the Son of God, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. When he made that statement, concluded his message. The Bible says, and they were pricked in their heart. Here's a they. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's a second they. They were pricked in their heart. Their hearts had been pricked. As I've mentioned in times past, the heart of a man by nature is like a stone. But in regeneration, God takes out the heart and stony heart and puts a heart of flesh in place of it. And the heart of flesh can be pricked. The fact they were pricked in the heart tells me that they had a divine nature that they had received in the work of regeneration, the work of the new birth, prior to hearing the Apostle Peter's message. 
In other words, they were already born of the Spirit of God before they heard this wonderful gospel message and before they were baptized, that we will see here. And so they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now let's break that expression down, repent. That means to turn, uh, you know, uh, and it begins in the heart. You must turn in your mind and turn in the way that you've been walking. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus means Savior. Christ means anointed. Be baptized in the name of the Savior that was anointed for the remission of sins. Sins to be remitted had to have blood shed from a perfect offering, a perfect sacrifice. And only Jesus Christ could provide that. So repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of the Savior who was anointed for the remission of sins, and something will happen. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Not the gift of eternal life. They had that or they wouldn't have been pricked in the heart. But they received something special, the gift of the Holy Ghost in that particular day. And then Peter goes on to tell them, he says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. He says, for the promise of, of God is unto you and to your children, and as many as are far off, even as many as the Lord thy God shall call. Now notice this, the promise is unto you and your children, and to as many as, that's an important expression in the Bible, as many as, it's a qualifying clause. To as many as the Lord thy God shall call. We're talking about people called and called of God, you see. All right? Then save yourselves from this untoward generation. The word untoward means perverse. This was a perverse generation of Jews in that particular day. They had rejected Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. Save yourselves from this untoward, this perverted generation. Save yourselves from it. Then it says, and then they, the third time, and they that gladly received his word were baptized, and there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. These 3,000 souls, or about 3,000 souls, are added to somebody. We'll see who that is in just a moment. They that gladly received his word. That tells me everyone did not gladly receive his word. But those that did were baptized. They did what Peter said do. They were baptized, and about 3,000 souls were added unto them. All right? And then they, the fourth day, that we find here, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So we get an idea who they are, right? Let's go back to chapter 1. Who were these about 3,000 souls added to? In Acts chapter 1, in the opening verses, you'll find where the Lord Jesus Christ gives a final message to his disciples, and then we find him ascending from this earth into heaven. We see him define the law of gravity, overcoming the very law of nature that he uh, established in the beginning of creation, he overpowers that. He ascends from this earth right into heaven. And then the disciples, after seeing this, returned to Jerusalem and went into a large upper room. Perhaps the large upper room where the Lord met with them for the Last Supper. The Passover Supper and then the Last Supper. But nevertheless, to a large upper room. And then we're told who those were. There are 11 of the apostles are there. They're all named. There was 12. Remember, Judas Iscariot is no longer with them. Judas Carrot is dead. So the 11 apostles remaining are all named. Then it says, and with the women who are not named, but then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, is named, and his brethren. Now if you go back and read in the book of Matthew, chapter 15, you'll find where his brethren are named. After Jesus was born, he was the firstborn, of course, because Mary was a virgin. Mary and Joseph had more children. They had four sons and at least two daughters. The four sons are named, and then it says, and his sisters, plural, so that means at least two, correct? So they had at least six children after Jesus. And so his brethren are there. Now this is an interesting collection of people. When you begin to examine the people under consideration here, you find where some were fishermen, and there was a, a tax collector, a uh, and there was Mary and his brethren. Perhaps some of his brethren continued to trade of Joseph as a carpenter. I don't know about that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But the Bible tells us they were all with one accord. And that word one accord comes up often in the first three chapters, first two chapters actually, of Acts. They were all with one accord. Okay? And they continued with one accord. They were all with one accord and continued. 
in prayer and supplication. Remember that. The word continue comes to our attention here. So here's this man. It says, and there were about 120. When you read the four Gospels, you're going to read the word multitudes many times. Oftentimes, multitudes following Jesus. But when Jesus goes back to heaven, multitudes are not to be found. Only about 120. Why is that? Well, some following Jesus out of curiosity. Uh, we find in John chapter 6 where the Lord said, You follow me because of the loaves and the fishes. He fed 5,000 men besides women and children, five loaves and two fishes. People like to eat. <laughs> and, and Jesus provided the meal. I tell you, if you cook it, they'll come. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> you, they cook it. You cook it, they'll come. And then he says, you follow me because of the miracles. And then Jesus began to preach. And I may be getting a little ahead of myself right here, but nevertheless, we'll just mention it. Jesus began to preach. And as Jesus began to preach his doctrine, the Bible says in John 666, interesting number, 666, found in Revelation, John 666, and many followed him no more. They said, this is a hard saying. This was a saying of Jesus. Now I might say something, somebody says, well, that's mighty hard. I might be at fault about it. I might be in error. Maybe, maybe I should have said it different. Maybe I should have said it softer and nicer or something. But they're charging Jesus with a hard saying. It was hard because of the truth of the matter. Because Jesus said in John 6 and 44, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up again to the last day. Jesus here is teaching man's depravity and the sovereign drawing power of God. And in verse 37, he says, All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh out no wise cast out. He says, The Father gave me some, and all he gave me, they shall come to me, and I'll not cast them out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but raise him up again in the last day. And they didn't like that. I enjoy that. I rejoice in that verse. I rejoice to hear it. I rejoice to read it. I rejoice to preach it. Jesus preached it. <laughs> did he not? He did. But they followed him no more. Many of his disciples followed him no more, leaving just a small number. We find about 120 is what's left. And you think about the period of time we're talking about, when there were 70 that Jesus sent out in Paris, two by two. There were their 12 apostles. There was John the Baptist. There was the Lord Jesus Christ. 70 and 12 is 82, John 83, Jesus 84, drop Judas out if you want to, we got 83. 83 of the finest men who've ever walked the shores of time. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect man. They preached, they taught, they did miracles. In spite of all of that, in Acts chapter 1, there's only about 120. Think about it. So now we're going to have about 3,000. Notice, it says about 3,000, about 120. So about 3,000 are added to the about 120. So we got about 3,120 people here. It's not going to stay that way long. We get to Acts chapter 8, you're going to find major persecution comes to this church at Jerusalem. And the disciples are scattered into many different areas. And that's the way it's been historically and biblically for 2,000 years. The Lord's church, the Lord's true church, I'm not talking about the denominational world here, I'm talking about the Lord's church, has existed in various parts of this earth as small bands of people who love him and love his word. There's a number of reasons why the Lord's church has always been small in number compared to the multitudes out here, again, in religious organizations in the denominational world. So that's who the they are this time. So these they are actually disciples. The word disciple means a pupil, a student, a learner. And a disciple is someone who follows someone for their teachings and then to apply those teachings. And so as disciples this morning, how do you relate to that? I want you to think about it now. I asked you in the beginning, in your mind, go back to this period of time. Let's say you're a Jew and you're there on that occasion. You hear this message and your heart's been pricked. And you're one of them that cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do if we crucify the Lord of glory, if we crucify the Messiah, what in the world are we going to do? And Peter says, we repent from it. Yes, you're guilty of the national sin of crucifying the Savior. You repent. And then you're baptized in his name. He's the one to put away your sins. 
by the sacrifice of himself. So you're baptized and you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And now you're numbered with this wonderful band of people here known as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word disciple is used 273 times in the Bible, all in the first five books of the New Testament. It's never used after the book of Acts. The word Christian, in contrast, is used three times. Yet you never hear people talking about, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? Everybody says, are you a Christian? I'd rather somebody ask me, am I a disciple of Jesus? That's what I want to be. I want to be a learner of Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Now, in, some, in many senses of the word, disciple and Christian are basically the same. You look at Acts eleven twenty six, and here we find the word Christian used for the first time. And they, the disciples, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. They didn't call themselves Christians. Those that observed them, those that saw them, observed them, they gave them the name Christian. That the suffix on the word Christian, I-N, at the end of it there, the suffix means belonging to a particular group. So the enemies really is who gave the name of Christian to the disciples in that day. That's a, it's a good name. The Apostle Peter says in his writings, if any man suffer what is a Christian, let him not be ashamed on this behalf. The best way for somebody to know you're a Christian is to live like one. If you live like a Christian, you don't have to put a button on your lapel saying, I'm a Christian. If that's the only way people know you're a Christian, that's, that's pretty poor advertising. But people know you're a Christian by how you talk and how you walk and how you live. They'll know whether you're a Christian or not. If you want to know if I'm a Christian, ask my neighbor, ask my family, ask my neighbor, ask my, my friends. Uh, they'll they'll tell, tell on me, <laughs> you know. That's how you know. That's why the Lord said, let your light so shine before me. And they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. If you're the salt of the earth, you let your light so shine before me. And uh, people are going to tell by your talk and your walk and your behavior and the life that you live and your faithfulness, your commitment, your dedication, whether you're really a Christian or not. The third time while I'm there is in Acts chapter 26 when King Agrippa sees and hears the Apostle Paul preach. And after Paul gets through preaching, Agrippa says, Thou almost persuades me to be a Christian. And Paul said, Oh, I wished altogether. He said, You would, but, all, but altogether, except for these bonds that I have. He had tattered clothes, torn clothes, marks of persecution on his face and his body. And Agrippa saw all that and no doubt thought, Well, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I, I, the message is good, but I'm not sure about the life. Not sure about the life. So we know who these they are right here. And they continued. Now that's an important thing, isn't it? To continue, if you're continuing a good thing. I look in John 8, 31, and the Lord Jesus Christ told some Jews and some religious proselytes who believed on him. He said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples, and my disciples indeed. To be a disciple, you have to continue in the word. Discipleship is not something that's cheap. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke made it very clear, except a man deny himself, take up his cross, he, and follow me. He cannot be my disciple. Disciple means self-denial. It means following the Lord Jesus Christ. Except a man confess me. He says he cannot be my disciple. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, it means confessing Christ in word and also in behavior. It means continuing in the word. Now a little later on, in John chapter 15, 8 and 9, you're going to find where the Lord Jesus Christ said, As the Father loveth me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. All right, we found two things we're to continue in. We're to continue in the Word. We're to continue in love. Now, anything that you're told to continue in, it wouldn't say that if it wasn't a possibility for it to stop. If it wasn't a possibility for you to discontinue, you wouldn't have the exhortation to continue. Does that make sense to you? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, the apostle tells the Hebrews, continue, uh, 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 brethren, uh, in, uh, continue thou in brotherly love. We're to continue in the love of God. We continue in brotherly love. We continue in the word. In the first chapter here, in verse 14, those about 120 I was talking to you about, it says, and they continued. In prayer and supplication. There's two things they continued in. We uh, take a look over in uh, Acts chapter 13. You're going to find where Paul and Barnabas had been preaching. And when they got through preaching on this occasion, it said those, uh, there were those who Jews and, and people who believed followed them. 
and kept talking to them about this. And Paul and Barnabas said they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. That expression, grace of God here, means the things that God provides us by his grace. Now, we oftentimes talk about being saved by grace, and certainly that's true eternity, in eternity and eternally speaking, we're saved by grace. But everything we enjoy in the Lord is by his grace. He gave us his church by his grace. He gave us his word by his grace. He gave us the gospel by his grace. These are all blessings of God that we don't deserve, in other words. God bestowed favor upon us when he established his gospel church here. He didn't have to do that. His church has never put anybody in glory. The shed blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing to save people that saved all whom the Father gave to him. But God was pleasing unto him to give us a written word here, but divine inspiration to tell us about it. Aren't you glad about that? I'm so happy that God was pleased to tell me about it. Well, where would I be without the knowledge God has given me over the course of my earthly journey here? I don't know where I'd be. I I wouldn't be here. I I don't know where I'd be, but God gave me that information. God gave me that understanding. He gave me his word. That's all by grace. And if I neglect it, I can receive the grace of God in vain. That's what Paul means when he used that expression in the Galatian letter. He was concerned they might have received the grace of God in vain. That means the things I've just been talking about, if they turned from it and went back to the law, they received the grace of God in vain. It's a timely application is what I'm trying to tell you. Hope you understand that. And we come to the 14th chapter. You're going to find where Paul and them had been preaching in various cities. And the cities they were preaching in prior to this, you're going to find while Paul was preaching in a place called uh, Iconium or Lystra, I believe it was, uh, that there were those who stoned him and brought him outside the city supposing he was dead. The only reason, in other words, they quit throwing stones at him, they thought they'd already killed him. But they didn't. And the disciples there all stood around him. And Paul got up <laughs> and went back into the city. And the next day they went to another place. And then the Bible says that they went confirming the souls. These are places they'd already been preaching the gospel, confirming the souls, and to encourage them and admonish them to continue in the faith. Now what do we got? We're to continue in the word. We're to continue in brotherly love. We're to continue in the love of Christ. We're to continue in the grace of God. We're to continue in the faith. It's important for us to continue, is it not? If it wasn't possible for us to discontinue or not continue, it wouldn't be in there like it is. Now, I'm going to tell you what it takes to be able to continue. The Apostle Paul had it in Acts 26, 22, when he told the people, Therefore, having obtained help of God, I continue to this day. Without God's help, I wouldn't be here this morning. Without God's help, I don't know where I'd be, but I wouldn't be here. I'd already fallen by the wayside. I'd already be, um, you know, I don't know where I'd be. I'd maybe already be dead. I don't know where I'd be except for the grace of God. Having obtained help of God, God's helped me all along the way. I'm telling you that. I couldn't even take a step forward without God helping me. I couldn't even breathe without God helping me. I certainly couldn't preach the gospel without God helping me. Having obtained help of God, I continue to this day. He didn't say about tomorrow. He just knew along the journey. If you go back and read his life prior to Acts 22, from Acts 9 to Acts 22, you're going to find where Paul had suffered tremendously. I've already told you in Acts chapter 14 where he was stoned to the point they thought they'd killed him and they had not. All the things he went through, yet what's he telling the disciples? He is exhorting them to continue in the grace of God, continue in the faith. Having obtained help of God, I continue unto this day. So we're to continue. These disciples here, it says, and they continued, and they continued steadfast. You see, there's a penalty for not continuing. <laughs> there is. You go look at Hebrews chapter 8, you're going to find where the Lord refers to the time when he brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. He says he led them by the hand. He led them by the hand. Isn't that an interesting expression? Except that they continue not in his covenant. They continue not in his covenant and they suffer the consequences for doing so. It's important. We, we got 
everything laid out in front of us here, it's important for us to continue as disciples, right? Now, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be adversities, there's going to be opposition. Uh, read the Bible, it shouldn't uh, surprise you with all that, should it? If you are faithfully following the Lord and Jesus Christ, there will be opposition, there will be some sufferings and persecutions along the way. But I want to encourage you to continue Continue in the faith, continue in the grace of God, continue in his word, continue in his love. And there'll be blessings galore to await you as you travel, uh, continue traveling here in your earthly journey. They, these disciples, continued steadfastly. Now, the word steadfast is an important word as well. I read over here in the end of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the resurrection chapter. It's got 58 verses in it. And the very last verse, the apostle says, But be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your, your uh, efforts are not in, your labors are not in vain. Now, the entire subject of the resurrection is what motivates that last statement. Do you understand this morning? I know you do. I just ask it anyway. Do you really understand the day's coming, that there will be a last day? Do you really understand that Jesus Christ shall return? Do you really understand that he'll speak and your body that's in the grave will hear his voice? And your body will come out of that grave glorified to be reunited with your soul and spirit that departed when you died? And then you'll be joined with the Lord's people and be in heaven one day, brethren. In heaven! Do you really understand that? If you do, that's why he closes it out like he does. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain. If you're laboring in the Lord, understanding why you're laboring, what you're laboring for, it will not be in vain. You, you may think it is. You may think, I just see no fruits. You know, I tell you what, if it wasn't for Galatians chapter 6, in verse, uh, verse 9, I don't know what I'd do. I really don't. The apostle said in Galatians 6, 9, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap if you faint not. I can't tell you how many times I've relied on that, how many times I've fell back on that, how many times I have thought about that. Be not weary in well-doing, because it just seems like no matter how well you do, there's no fruit to be seen of it. But i got to be patient. <laughs> be not weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap if you faint not. I don't want to faint in the service of God. So I think about that. So he said, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I want to tie in a verse over here in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, in Ephesians chapter 6. In 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Peter says, be vigilant, be sober, for your adversary the devil is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, you have an adversary, it's the devil. And he's like a roaring lion. You ever seen, uh, I know you've seen films and movies and things and of the lion as he uh, hides in the tall grass and he's just ready to crouch uh, upon an antelope or a smaller animal and destroy him. That's the way Satan is. And he's going to tell you how to, how, to, how to survive. He said, be vigilant, be sober, Sound thinking. For your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. You can resist him, but you have to do it in the faith. Resist steadfast. See the word steadfast? Steadfast in the faith. Now, over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, familiar portion of scripture to people even who don't read the Bible. It says, be strong in the Lord. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. If I'm going to be strong where I can resist the devil, I've got to do it in the power of the Lord and in his might. Right? Be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, uh, against uh, spiritual wickedness in high places. Then he says, therefore... Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand. Withstand. 
How many times you hear, you know, you may use that expression, you, you tell you, you just got to withstand against that. You got to resist that, that you might withstand. And there, having done all to stand, then he says, and stand. <laughs> stand, stand, withstand. How are you going to stand, stand, and withstand? How are you going to be steadfast? By putting on the whole armor of God. And what is that armor? It's the helmet of salvation. Protect your mind. Satan infiltrates your mind. Deceiving your mind. Telling you need things you don't need. Telling you need to go to a place you don't need to go. Telling you need to be involved in things you don't need to be involved in. So he enters into the mind. Infiltrates the mind. Put on the breastplate of rights to protect your heart. Satan likes to do all kind of crazy things with your emotions, with your feelings, you know. Somebody said, well, I just got a good feeling about this. I'm going to tell you, my feelings are letting me down more times they've held me up. I tell you, well, always hold you up, though. That's the word of God. It's not based on feeling. It's not based on feeling. Your heart needs protecting. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Have your loins girt about with truth. The loins in the Bible symbolizes the strength of the body. Have your loins girt about what? With truth. Truth. Then have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How important are your feet? <laughs> That's why we read in Isaiah 52, 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good news and glad tidings. Talking about Christ. And then in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, Paul quotes that and he says, How beautiful are the feet, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good news and glad tidings. It's the feet that's beautiful. I read one time of this preacher uh, on a foreign soil. Uh, people kept mocking him all the time because he just wasn't handsome. He just didn't look good. And finally one day he had but all he could take of it. He said, I'll admit I don't have pretty hair because I'm, I'm about bald and it's all gone. And I admit I don't have pretty teeth, <laughs> the, den the ones I've got the dentist made. And I don't have a pretty face. Nothing to do about that. I don't have beautiful clothes to wear. He said, but I have beautiful feet. <laughs> so what kind of feet do you have here this morning, brethren? Do you have beautiful feet? That's the most beautiful part of the body that you could uh, uh, desire. Have beautiful feet. Because feet is what seems, uh, you know, men by nature would say the feet are the most uncomely. But if you're walking in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ... I'm telling you now, as a disciple of the Savior, you got beautiful feet. <laughs> Where are your feet taking you? You got beautiful feet. Don't worry about the rest of your body. It's all in vain anyway. Do you know that? That's how Proverbs chapter 31 closes out. Beauty is vain. Favor is deceitful. Beauty is vain. Why? Because beauty is something you won't retain all the days of your life. I don't care what Mary Kay says. Excuse me. <laughs> Mary Kay lady in congregation. <laughs> It'll do as good as any of them. But anyway, <laughs> don't be deceived by that. I'm not against looking the best you can look. <laughs> Trust me. I, look, I may not look great, but I look better than I did when I got up this morning. <laughs> I tried to make improvements. I looked in the mirror and I said, boy, I got, I got, I got to make a lot of improvement. I ain't got much time to do it in. <laughs> I imagine all of you have done the same thing, thank God. So put on that whole armor of God, for they continued steadfastly. Steadfastly. In what? In the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine was not the only doctrine of the day. The Lord warned his disciples about the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. If you read in Acts 23, 8, you get a little indication of this. The Bible says the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the spirits and they didn't believe in angels. All that, my friends, is bad doctrine. Because there is the spirit. There is the resurrection to look forward to. And there are angels, but the Sadducees denied them all. He warned them against the doctrine of the Sadducees. When it comes to the doctrine of the Pharisees, it was a work-based system. They believed that you had to keep the law of Moses. You had to leave, live a life of perfection. You had to reach a point of sinless perfection. And so they were self-righteous. And that was their doctrine. The Lord warned them against their doctrine. You go to Revelation chapter 2. Start reading about the seven churches of Asia. You read about the doctrine of Balaam. 
You read about Balaam in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. You just read about him a few days ago if you were on the Bible reading schedule. And Balaam was a prophet that Balak of the Moabites tried to bribe to get him to curse the nation of Israel. He would not do it. And he uh, promised him great rewards. And he won those rewards. If you study his life out enough, Peter brings him up. And so God will not allow him to curse them. But later on we find where Balaam, you might say on the sly, told them how to destroy the Israelites by getting uh, them to commit fornication with with the Moabite people. And then you got the doctrine of Jezebel. You know all about Jezebel, don't you? 1 Kings chapter 21. How did Jezebel come up with that plan to steal Naboth's vineyard and have him slain so Ahab, her wicked husband, could have it? The Lord says the doctrine of Jezebel. The Lord says the doctrine of Balaam. The Lord says about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now that's a little more difficult group to to kind of come up with something on, but I know this much about them. They were a group that brought her, uh, heretical doctrines into the church in that day, and the Lord Jesus Christ reproves those churches for having them. So what is the Apostles' Doctrine? The Apostles' Doctrine is the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ. You're reading the four Gospels numerous times, at least eight different times, where he speaks about Jesus doing something, and he refers to him as, as his doctrine. You know how the Bible... Uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount closes it out in Matthew chapter 7. The very last thing it says about the Sermon on the Mount says the Lord Jesus Christ, when he got through preaching about the people were astonished at his doctrine. Astonished at his doctrine. It belonged to him. And the apostles' doctrine was the doctrine of Christ because it's what Christ told them to preach. Look at Matthew chapter 28 of the gospel commission Jesus gave them before going to glory. He said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, I have all power both in heaven and earth. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, and lo, I'll go with you all the way to the end of the earth. He says, what you're to teach is not more, not less than what I have commanded you to teach. Follow me here now. Here are these twelve apostles whom the Lord has chosen in a sovereign manner and sovereign way from his disciples, and he's going to tell them now, he says, you go and you teach all nations. You teach among the Gentiles as well as the Jews now. Before that, they were restricted. He says, you teach them this right here. You teach them all things I have commanded you. Teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you all the way to the end of the world. So I know the apostles taught exactly what Jesus commanded them. The apostles' doctrine represented the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now Christ gave it to them and then they preached it. So when we study the Bible, we're studying what? We're studying the doctrine of the apostles, aren't we? Oh, there's 14, uh, excuse me, there's, um, there's nine uh, church letters to seven churches. Paul wrote all of them, apostle. There's First and Second Peter, apostle. There's First John, Second John, Third John, Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, apostle John. Apostle John, apostle Peter, apostle Paul. Apostle Matthew, Gospel of Matthew. We study the New Testament. We study the doctrine of the apostles, which is the doctrine of Christ. Now notice a few things about this. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul tells Timothy, he says, Be instant in season and out of season. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. That means, Timothy, you're to preach whether you feel like it or not. I love the story, you know, of the woman getting her son out of the bed and he'd go to church and he didn't want to go to church. And he said, just give me one good reason why I should go to church today. He said, well, you're the pastor. <laughs> so <laughs> pastors get headaches, pastors get back aches, pastors have arthritis, pastors don't always feel uh, chipper and get one thing and another. But I tell you one thing, uh, it, it take a lot to get me down. He says, preach the word, yes, and then season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But will heap themselves teachers having itching ears. They want their ears scratched. They want a certain sound. They want a certain message. They're not really interested in the truth. They will not endure what sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy doctrine, which is the apostles' doctrine. 
They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Not the doctrine of uh, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or Balaam or Jezebel and Nicolaitans, but the apostles' doctrine. So I start studying the apostles' doctrine. And you got time for a couple hours? <laughs> well, I don't. <laughs> the apostles' doctrine. Well, the apostles' doctrine about man and sin is clearly laid out for us. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 12, wherefore by one man sin in the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men for all is sin. That's the apostles' doctrine, original sin that took place in Adam in the Garden of Eden. When Adam transgressed God's law, sin came into the world and sin is a result of that. And sin and death passed upon all men, all categories of men without exception. Romans 6 and 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, when you study depravity in the Bible, brethren, uh, it's going to show you that man, when Adam transgressed, he put himself and all his posterity, the entire human race, under the penalty of the law of sin and death. Man died. He didn't just get hurt. He wasn't injured. He wasn't sick. He died. That's the doctrine of depravity. That's where I am in human nature. That's where you're at in human nature. That's the apostles' doctrine. But the apostles also preached something called unconditional election. And they continue steadfastly in that. I look over here in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and Paul says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children unto Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his own will and praise to the glory of his grace, when he hath made us accepted in the beloved. I just give you uh, some verses here that teach the doctrine of election and also the doctrine of predestination. If you're a true disciple of Christ, you have to acknowledge the fact that the Bible has something to say about election. And the Bible has something to say about predestination. You just can't ignore it and reject it and pretend it doesn't exist. It's there. Thank God it's there. When you fully understand man's depravity, then you'll really appreciate the unconditional love of God and unconditional uh, uh, act of election before time ever began. Look at 2 Timothy 1, um, 9 and 10. Who has saved us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. Something took place before the foundation of the world. Romans chapter 9, verse 11, Paul says, For the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Notice, not of works. Children having not yet been born has nothing to do with their lives. It all comes down to the sovereign hand of God, brethren. The children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. As it's written, the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. That's the apostles' doctrine. God loved Jacob. He hated Esau. Jacob's a picture of unconditional election. God elected Jacob and loved him, not because uh, uh, he was good and righteous. If you study his life, it's right the opposite. So what shall we then say to these things? Is there unrighteous with God? That's what people say. I've heard them say it. Is there unrighteous with God? He says, God forbid. Uh, have mercy on whom thou mercy, I'll have compassion on whom thou compassion. So it's not of him that willeth, it's not of him that runneth, but it's God that showeth mercy. Thank God it's God, God that showeth mercy. Thank God he'll have compassion on him, he'll have compassion. That's the apostles' doctrine. Romans 8.33, Paul says, Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? The elect represents somebody. <laughs> if you love the Lord, he represents you. If you enjoy reading the Word of God, it represents you. If you enjoy hearing the gospel preached, it represents you. If you enjoy engaging in spiritual conversation, it represents you. If you have compassion in your heart for other people and the love of God, my friends, for the people of God, it represents you. Elder Cecil Darty one time was talking to somebody about this and he drew a circle on the board and he put a lot of dots in the circle and then he put some dots out here and he said, now... 
this is a, the human race and, and God before time again out of every nation, kindred and tongue and people chose a people and they're represented by the dots in the circle. And somebody says, well, what about this person outside the circle that loves God? He said, wait a minute, I got to make the circle bigger. <laughs> if they love the Lord, they're in the circle, in other words, brother. Who shall lay anything in charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. They continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Comes to predestination. People, oh, I don't know about that. Well, let's see about that. I've already given you one there in Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Yes, listen to me just for a second or two. When you understand what predestination does, I don't know how anybody could be upset. We're not talking about God predestinating the acts of men. God forbid, that's not taught in the Word of God. God's not the author of confusion or evil or sin. But predestination involves God taking you out of one family, the family of Adam, and putting you in another family, the family of the Lord Jesus Christ over here, the spirit of adoption, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his own will, not my will, his will. Romans 8 and 29 and 30. Well, with whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Predestination means one day you'll be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? You go back to Genesis chapter 5, and you'll find where man began to make man in his own image. We got man in his own image, and his image was that of a sinful man, a sinful nature. But there's coming a day you'll be conformed to the image of the blessed Son of God. And of whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And he justified, them he also glorified. Then I look in Ephesians 1 and 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That means you have an inheritance in a place called heaven. <laughs> in a place quite called heaven. That's where you have an inheritance. That's where your citizenship is. And it's based upon God's purpose of predestination, predestinating you to be conformed to the image of His Son, being adopted in the family of Christ, and one day you'll obtain that inheritance according to the good pleasure of His own will. I'm glad I'm here this morning. <laughs> I'm glad it's my turn to preach. <laughs> I'm telling you, this was the apostles' doctrine. And the apostles preached not only the doctrine of election and predestination, but the effectual call, which means all of God's family, sometime between their conception and their death, shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear, they shall live. They shall be brought from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ. That's the effectual call. That's regeneration, my friends. And God has never called at anybody. He simply calls them, and he's never failed in one case yet and the preservation of the saints. I'll just try to wind it up on this one. What does that really mean? That means the Lord's family, the elect of God, have eternal security in Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, we can walk in a way here in this life that forfeit our blessings. We can walk in a way that the chastising rod of God can come down upon us, brethren, in our disobedience to the Lord, but I'm telling you, God will never quit loving us. He'll never quit loving us. Thank God for that. I love how John 13 is when it says, when the time of the feast of the Passover had come, when Jesus knew his time for him to depart out of this world unto the Father, he loved his own which were in the world, and he loved them unto the end. I get tired of hearing about people saying, I don't love you anymore. I'm glad Jesus didn't have that attitude. I'm telling you by nature, I know I don't deserve the love of Christ. And I know I've done in such a manner and way in times past. Uh, if God's love could see, surely it would have left me a long time ago. But I'm talking about the everlasting love of God. I'm talking about the eternal love of God. I'm not the love of God, brother, that will never leave you, never cease from uh, embracing you here in this world. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I've already quoted, it's God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is he says, it's he who died for you and rose again. It's on the right hand of God and make an intercession for you. If Christ died for you, if Christ rose for you, if Christ is making intercession for you, you're his and you're heaven bound and you're heaven bound and all the devils in hell, my friends, cannot take you out of the hand of Christ. 
I tell you, I look out on the congregation this morning, and in other times I see people who come from a short distance, some less than a mile. I see people who have come from well over an hour away. We have people here from Murfreesboro. We have people here from Hendersonville, Goodnessville, Madison, Gallatin, Westmoreland, Portland, Castilla Springs, White House, Jolton. I'm sure I'll probably lose one somewhere along Mount Juliet, Old Hickory, Hermitage. Some come a short way, some come a long ways. Remember Brother Nathan Etheridge used to drive an hour and 15 and 20 minutes to get here from up above uh, um, Cookville. Thank you. <laughs> Cookville. He's the first one here. He'd be the first one here and he did it in his mid and late 80s. You know why? Because it's a, if it's alive, it's worth the drive, brother. That's just say that about it. Right? <laughs> if it's alive, it's worth the drive. It's worth the drive to hear the truth. It's worth the drive, whether you go a few miles or a lot of miles, to hear about the sovereignty of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the preserving uh, of grace and blood of our Savior and how that he has you in the palm of his hand. John chapter 10, I know my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me and I have given them eternal life and they shall never perish and no man can pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand for I am the Father of one. If that's not worth driving an hour or two hours or whatever the case may be, I don't know what would be. They continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. The doctrine of justification, reconciliation, redemption, etc., etc., etc. And all the teachings of the apostles, not only eternally but practically speaking, they embraced it. They continued steadfastly in it. May that be us today as a collective band of people. May it be your case as an individual. A lot of things out here to distract you, a lot of things out here to sidetrack you. I'm telling you, don't let it happen. You continue in God's marvelous, wonderful, miraculous, and amazing grace.